January 6, 1853. Franklin Pierce, newly elected as the 14th President of the United States, is accompanied by his wife, Jane, and their 11-year-old son, Benny, traveling by train from Andover, Massachusetts, back home to Concord, New Hampshire. In a short matter of weeks, this family of three will embark to Washington, D.C., and prepare for the presidential inauguration. As the train leaves Andover, rumbling along the tracks, Jane sits in stern stoicism. She harbors nervous feelings that her husband's recent victory had demonstrated ego, a vain affront to God. Franklin had promised her he'd steer clear of national politics, and yet now, here she is, soon to be First Lady. She casts her eyes on her young son, Benny, their only surviving child, standing at the window staring out at the view, when suddenly there is a violent wrenching, a tremendous jolt, frightful, terrifying mashing of metal machinery. The pierces, all the passengers on the train car, are thrown tumbling from their seats. The car seems to lift into the air, suspended, derailed. Then it rolls, windows breaking, metal shrieking, everything falling in a chaotic blur. People scream out in terror as the train car crashes downhill. A minute later, the world is still again. Only moans and groans, the hissing of the engine. Panicked, Jane struggles to her feet, seeking out her son. Instead, she sees only her husband, pale and shaken, shielding her from seeing what? And there is poor Benny, his body crushed. He is gone. If Jane Pierce needed confirmation that her husband's desire to be president was somehow misguided and wrong, here it is in this moment of horror, this tragic retribution. Yet despite this unbearable loss, the Pierces, Franklin and Jane, must now forge onward to the White House. In a body like Congress, where there are more than 100 talking lawyers, you can make no calculation upon the termination of any debate. Infrequently, the more trifling the subject, the more animated and protracted the discussion. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to American History Hit. I'm your host, Don Wildman. Nice to have you. Today, as happens on this series every two weeks, we advance along the timeline of American presidencies. Today is number 14, President Franklin Pierce, Democrat of New Hampshire, elected 1852, served one term from 1853 to 57. For those of you of keeping track, he was preceded by Millard Fillmore of New York and succeeded by James Buchanan of Pennsylvania. Pierce is remembered, well, rather poorly if you look at the popular rankings. Part of the long line of antebellum presidents from 1815 to 1861 who are generally judged by their varying positions on the role of federal government in American life, most particularly as pertains to westward expansion and, of course, the institution of slavery. As we march towards civil war, U.S. presidents are seen to bend into pretzel positions to accommodate their supporters and appease their opposition. 
But part of Pierce's legacy is the fact that for a man morally opposed to enslavement, he proved rather flexible when it came to preserving the status quo. Pierce was a unionist to the end, to his advantage at first, and then his historical detriment. There's a big history in the Pierce presidency, and we discuss it today with Brian Newman, Managing Director of the John L. Now III Center for Civil War History at the University of Virginia, author of Bloody Flag of Anarchy, Unionism in South Carolina. Hello, Brian. Nice to have you. Thank you so much for having me. We really need to start talking about the Pierce White House with the accident before he assumes the presidency, what we featured in the opening of this episode. One biographer I read says, within days, Pierce lost not only his surviving son, his wife's support, his self-confidence, his ability to lead, and his will to succeed. Wow, talk about a train wreck. But in this case, it's literal. How much does this train accident derail his presidency before it even begins? So Franklin Pierce married Jane Appleton in 1834, and right from the beginning, it was a, a marriage of opposites. She was shy and deeply religious. She supported the temperance movement to limit the consumption of alcohol, and above all, she hated politics. Pierce, on the other hand, was outgoing. At various points in his life, he was a pretty heavy drinker, and he, of course, loved politics. So it wasn't a perfect marriage. They had three children, all of whom died in childhood. And as you said, their 11-year-old son, Benny, dies in this horrific train accident in January of 1853, only a few months before Pierce becomes president. Both Pierces are distraught. His wife refuses to appear at large public functions for the first two years of Pierce's time in the White House. And so Pierce didn't have the sort of powerful political alliance that some of our presidents had. John Adams, John Quincy Adams, Franklin Roosevelt, who all had the political support of powerful women. Franklin Pierce doesn't have that. He really has to go it alone. And I do think that plays an important role in shaping his presidency. As I understand it, there's a lot of talk about his wife holding him responsible for this accident. I mean, he refuses to swear on the Bible, you know, at, at his inauguration. He feels that God is against him. Are, is this just hyperbole or, or is this actually true history? No, it's certainly true that Pierce does blame himself in, in a way for the death of his child. And, and his wife blames Pierce's love of politics for the death of their child. So I do think it's this deeply troubling start to the presidency that must have had a profound effect on him. I do think that it's possible to make too much of it. I think some scholars want to say that this was the defining instance that, that shaped the entire Pierce presidency. I think that would perhaps be going too far. But for any president, beginning the presidency under the weight of losing their only child in such a horrific manner right in front of their face had to have cast deep scars. Okay, so let's back up. When Pierce is nominated for the presidency, he has a lengthy resume. New Hampshire House of Representatives. His father was the governor of New Hampshire. He was the speaker of that house in his late 20s. U.S. House of Representatives, 1833, in Jackson's term, second term, Andrew Jackson's second term. Four years later, he is a U.S. senator. Then he steps out of politics. He serves as a volunteer colonel and then promoted to brigadier general in the Mexican-American War, 1846 to 48. He serves under Winfield Scott, interestingly, we'll discuss later until he becomes the Democratic presidential nominee in 1852, when he's drafted as a dark horse candidate. Well-liked, amiable man, very intelligent, does not exactly stir passions. 
takes 49 ballots at the convention before he receives the nomination. But upon his election, he is the youngest president at that time at the age of 48. A remarkable story. We always have to catch people up to the, the fact that they become president after a huge career, of course. He enters into the presidency in fraught times. It is a bad mood in the nation due to all the expansionist issues and the, the rise of the northern abolitionist movement for more than a decade before. It's a remarkable era that Pierce will serve in. Can you speak to that? Absolutely. So as you said, Pierce has this meteoric rise. When he wins the Democratic presidential nomination in 1852, he, he doesn't have a strong national reputation. And in fact, some of his opponents mock him with slogans like, who's Franklin Pierce? But he is incredibly accomplished. And um, he becomes a state legislator at 24, a congressman at 28, a senator at 32. He is not famous for giving any major speeches or drafting any major legislation, but he earned a reputation as an honest, capable politician and, crucially, a, a reliable Democratic vote. It's also really important to note that under Pierce's leadership, New Hampshire was one of the most reliably democratic states in the country, which certainly bolstered his reputation within the party. Leading up to the election of 1852, one of the crucial things to understand is the Compromise of 1850. Your listeners will have heard this on your previous podcast, so I won't go too in-depth. But essentially, after the Mexican-American War, the U.S. acquired a huge expanse of territory, present-day California, New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, the question of whether or not slavery will spread into those territories proves deeply divisive. Tensions reach a boiling point by 1850, and in 1850, Congress crafts this compromise. California is admitted as a free state. There are no restrictions on slavery in New Mexico and Utah territories, bans the slave trade in Washington, D.C., but not slavery itself, and passed a stronger Fugitive Slave Act. And not everyone is happy. New England Whigs think it's too pro-slavery. Deep South Democrats think it's too anti-slavery. And of course, African-Americans are outraged, especially by the Fugitive Slave Act. But many Americans rejoiced. Many Americans were relieved and accepted this as the final settlement of the slavery issue. And leading into the election of 1852, there's a period of relative calm. When we think of the antebellum era, we often think about a series of flashpoints leading inevitably to civil war. But it's also important to remember that there are periods of calm in between those, those flashpoints. If you ask people on the ground in 1852, they probably would have said that civil war seemed further away in 52 than it had two years earlier. So all of that sets the stage for the election of 1852. The Democratic Party is working to reunify itself after years of these intense internal battles over slavery. And as a result, going into the Democratic National Convention, various front runners like James Buchanan and Stephen Douglas can't get the two-thirds vote necessary to win the nomination. And so after three days and 49 ballots, they finally settle on a compromise candidate, Pierce. And again, he is this capable, experienced politician, a party loyalist, and as a Northerner who publicly defended slavery, he was someone who could hopefully unify the various elements of the Democratic Party. You mentioned the notion that there's a calm here, that the Compromise of 1850, I don't know that they thought of it as the final solution, but rather so many people, including Franklin Pierce, I think, 
imagined that slavery would just wear itself out, that the whole institution was inefficient, that there was a new day coming in America, that this whole industrialization was going to cause the need for free labor and not enslaved labor. All of these guys, including Lincoln and so forth, kind of saw this sort of thing working its way out as long as we hold the union together, right? Is that the idea of a unionist such as Pierce? Well, I think there are several different strains of unionism. So certainly people like Abraham Lincoln believed in free labor ideology. They believed if you could just stop slavery from expanding, then eventually slavery perhaps would die out on its own because they believed, you know, free labor was just inherently a more efficient system and, of course, a more morally just system. I think Pierce is less concerned with the morality of slavery. So you're, you're right to say that Pierce personally opposes slavery. In, in congressional speeches in the 1830s, he calls slavery a social evil, and he says that he wishes slavery didn't exist anywhere in the world. But as a politician, he insists over and over again that the Constitution protects slavery, and therefore he has no right to interfere with it. And so I think when it comes to the question of westward expansion, someone like Abraham Lincoln would say, just ban slavery from the territories, and that will settle the situation. Pierce is much more likely to let settlers on the ground decide the question of slavery. And that, that sort of gets us into the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which I can exactly. talk about in just a few minutes. But The notion of popular sovereignty. Let's just define that right off the bat, because we're going to talk about it several times. So the essence of popular sovereignty is letting the settlers of a territory or a state decide the future of slavery. And this is meant to be a compromise. Slavery was such a divisive issue in Congress, and popular sovereignty was intended to get the issue out of Congress, let the people decide. What could be more democratic than that? In practice, it often fails spectacularly. The Kansas-Nebraska Act becomes the signature legislation that really defines the Franklin Pierce presidency. It is a, an outgrowth, as you say, of the Compromise of 1850, but it's really driven by a guy named Stephen Douglas, who's going to come along later very famously in the debates against Abraham Lincoln, the Douglas-Lincoln debates. He has certain motivations that aren't necessarily on the surface. What's going on with Douglas and the whole idea behind the Kansas-Nebraska Act? Absolutely. So before I get into that, I'd like to talk briefly about Pierce's vision as he begins his presidency. So when Pierce becomes president, his two main goals are preserving the union and reunifying the Democratic Party. He recognizes that there have been these deep wounds and it's, it's his job to heal the party and the nation. And so as he selects his cabinet and lower level officials, he tries to balance various factions of the Democratic Party, trying to please everyone, trying to unify the party. And in terms of preserving the union, he believes in a narrow construction of the Constitution, essentially saying if the federal government and the state governments would all just operate in their own constitutionally defined spheres, that would allow for peace and prosperity. He also, again, publicly supports slavery. He says that the Constitution sanctions and protects slavery, and therefore he will accept no agitation over the slavery issue. So those are his large goals. Unfortunately, the Kansas-Nebraska Act unravels the Pierce administration. Culturally, an interesting moment. I have to just interject. 
Right now, you can think of this on the ground as a, a sort of common American. Right now, Uncle Tom's Cabin has been released. It's a, it is a huge bestseller in 1852. All through that election, that is a m- major story. It's been a serialized version, and then the, the book is released later on. But that's kind of in the backdrop of everything that's happening now. We can completely project ourselves into that. Imagine some huge story like that going on at the same time as an election. That's what's happening as Pierce is coming in. So he's not only dealing with all the divisive issues you're talking about within his own party, uh, but the nation itself is more than ever racked by the idea of slavery and the North's response to it. That's what's going on along with the fact that there's these political issues such as California being free, but then New Mexico and Utah, all that 1850 stuff from the compromise, never mind the Fugitive Slave Act. My Lord, there's a lot happening in the newspapers. It's certainly a a difficult time to become president. To understand the Kansas-Nebraska Act, in 1820, during another crisis over slavery, the Missouri Compromise had barred slavery in the territory north and west of Missouri. So the area that became Iowa, Kansas, Nebraska, and the Dakotas. But by the 1850s, many Americans were eager to organize that territory, to survey the land so settlers could start buying farms and and railroads could expand westward. And Senator Stephen Douglas of Illinois emerges as a leader in this movement to organize the territory and build a transcontinental railroad. The problem is, a powerful group of Southern senators opposed organizing the territory. After all, slavery was banned from the territory, and if you organized it and encouraged settlement, you'd eventually get more free states. And over time, the South would have less and less power in Congress. But Stephen Douglas was determined to organize the territory. And so in January of 1854, he proposed the Kansas-Nebraska Act. It created two territories, Kansas and Nebraska, and it repealed the Missouri Compromise allowing settlers in those territories to decide whether or not to allow slavery. As I said, this principle known as popular sovereignty was Douglas' solution to the sectional crisis between the North and the South. Initially, Pierce and most of his cabinet opposed the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Pierce, in his inaugural address, had hoped that, quote, the question of slavery is at rest. And, of course, this act had the potential to reawaken it. But Pierce met with Douglas and this group of Southern senators, and they persuaded him to support the act. Now, it's impossible to say for sure what changed Pierce's mind. But what does seem clear is that Pierce believed the Missouri Compromise was unconstitutional. Uh, He believed that America's territories belonged to all Americans, slaveholders and non-slaveholders alike. And Pierce drafted some of the Kansas-Nebraska Act's language writing that the Missouri Compromise was, quote, inconsistent with the principle of non-intervention by Congress with slaves in the states and territories. So essentially what he's doing is he's appealing to this principle set forth in the Compromise of 1850. That compromise had organized the Utah and New Mexico territories without reference to slavery, letting settlers decide. And now Pierce says we should do the same thing with Kansas and Nebraska. Once Pierce makes up his mind, He lobbies congressmen hard to support the bill and makes it clear that he considers this bill a test of party loyalty. Any Democrat must support this bill. And ultimately, the Kansas-Nebraska Act passes in May of 1854. Right. It has the the ironic effect of splitting the Democrats, right, between North and South. Absolutely. So ironically, Pierce, despite his fierce commitment to preserving 
and reunifying the Democratic Party helps split the party and ultimately the, the nation. It ignites a firestorm of protest across the North. In the congressional elections of 1854, Northern Democrats lose 66 of their 91 seats. It's a crushing defeat. Many Northerners viewed the Missouri Compromise as an almost sacred pact. This territory had been set aside as free soil, and now it was open to slavery. It's important to note that very few Northerners were true abolitionists, people that wanted to abolish slavery immediately or who believed in Black civil rights or suffrage. But many Northerners were opposed to the spread of slavery. They wanted to keep the territories free for white settlers. Many Northern Democrats felt that way as well. And they were outraged by the Kansas-Nebraska Act opening these Western territories to slavery. It also has a strong hand in destroying the Whig Party at this point. How does that work? So the Whigs, if possible, are even more deeply divided than Democrats over the issue of slavery. By the 1850s, New England Whigs are increasingly opposed to slavery, while Whigs in the South are increasingly champions of slavery. And for several elections, the Whigs had tried to pursue a sort of two-faced political campaign where they would support slavery in the South and oppose slavery in the North. But this becomes increasingly difficult to balance. And that's a big part of why the Whigs are crushed in the election of 1852. And looking ahead to 1854, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, there is popular outrage over the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Across the North, people organize meetings and draft petitions and publish editorials. And ultimately, many people begin to believe that a new party is necessary, that issues over slavery cannot be solved by Democrats or the Whigs. We need a new Republican party that will stand up to slaveholders and keep the territories free from slavery. Right. This reaches back to the National Republicans back in the 1820s. They kind of adopt this new name, and Lincoln really does become the leader of this, right? It takes Lincoln a couple of years. Lincoln is a deeply loyal Whig, and for a while he hopes that the Kansas-Nebraska Act will reinvigorate the Whig Party. But it quickly becomes clear that the Republicans are on the rise. The Whig Party, as a, a national party that has to balance a northern wing and a southern wing is just incapable of handling this divisive issue of slavery. And so Lincoln comes around and joins the Republican Party and becomes a champion of its free labor ideology. Yeah. I'll be back with more American history after this short break. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. 
Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special miniseries. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. So let me get this straight. We have two realms. We have Kansas, we have Nebraska. When we speak of these, we are not speaking of the present day sizes of these. These are enormous territories that reach westward, Nebraska especially, much bigger. Are they both open to slavery or or not? Well, the act opens both to popular sovereignty and therefore to the possibility of slavery. There was some popular belief that perhaps Kansas would become a slave state while Nebraska would become a free state. But in theory, both territories are open to slavery. Anti-slavery support in Nebraska, much stronger than Kansas. That's the important point. So at that point, many, many settlers are moving in, pro-slavery settlers are moving into Kansas, strengthening the voting bloc, essentially, for a pro-slavery vote in that popular sovereignty. This spawns what we now know as bleeding Kansas. I mean, it becomes a state of war, practically, in this, in this area, right? Again, it's ironic. Popular sovereignty, letting settlers decide the fate of slavery, was meant to be a peaceful solution, a testament to democracy. Instead, what happens is settlers from the North and the South flood into the territory to violently contest the future of slavery. It does seem as though anti-slavery settlers are in the majority in Kansas. The problem is the Kansas territory is right next to Missouri, which is a slave state. And so Whenever there's an election in Kansas, it's very easy for scores of settlers, pro-slavery settlers from Missouri to flood the territory, vote in the election, and then go back home. And this is precisely what happens in March of 1855 when Kansas votes for delegates to its new territorial legislature. Scores of pro-slavery Missourians cross the border, vote illegally, and as a result, pro-slavery forces dominate the territorial legislature. And they pass laws making it a felony to criticize slavery, imposing the death penalty on anyone who aids runaway slaves, and prohibiting anti-slavery men from holding office. In response, anti-slavery settlers organize what we would consider a shadow government. They organize their own government. Tensions escalate into a series of brutal attacks between pro-slavery and anti-slavery forces. Settlers commit several brutal murders pro-slavery forces attack an anti-slavery community, and the territory really does escalate into sort of guerrilla warfare. Yeah. John Brown shows up, right? Absolutely. John Brown shows up and kills several pro-slavery settlers. And so it's an incredibly violent situation. Ultimately, Pierce calls in several hundred U.S. soldiers to try to restore order. And crucially, Pierce sides with Kansas's pro-slavery settlers. Pierce admits that Missourians had interfered with the territory's elections. But he says, quote, whatever irregularities may have occurred in the elections, it seems too late now to raise that question. For all present purposes, the legislative body thus elected is the legitimate legislative assembly. In other words, 
Pierce recognizes there was massive election fraud. He says the fact of the matter is the election has been decided. This pro-slavery government is the legitimate government. He views this, this free state shadow government as illegal, revolutionary, and he says it verges on, quote, treasonable insurrection. Pierce believes he is defending law and order and defending the stability of the Union against the forces of anarchy. And in his mind, events in Kansas are all the confirmation he needs that anti-slavery reformers are disunionists. And again, I think from our perspective, it's from our 21st century perspective, we can and absolutely should criticize Pierce's ardent public defense of slavery. But it's important to note where Pierce was coming from. Some politicians in the 1850s, in the Republican Party especially, believed there was a higher law than the Constitution, that God's law had promised freedom to all men and women, and that took precedence over the Constitution. Pierce profoundly disagreed. For Pierce, the Constitution and the Union were the highest law. For Pierce, slavery was not a religious or a moral issue. It was a constitutional issue. And so even though Pierce personally viewed slavery as an evil, he believed it was his duty as the president to defend it because it was sanctioned by the Constitution. Isn't that the most remarkable aspect of American history? How people react to the Constitution as this holy, sacred document truly is the way that, that most decisions have been made, I would say, certainly at the presidential level, but really all the way down the line. It's an extraordinary fact of American history, really is. And, and Pierce, is a, that is, figures heavily in his presidency. What's the reaction to Pierce's position on Kansas, uh, Nebraska, in the North? Absolute outrage. So after the Kansas-Nebraska Act, and now after Pierce's response to events in Kansas, many Northerners believe that Pierce has sold them out to pro-slavery forces. Increasingly, this idea emerges of a slave power conspiracy, the idea that powerful pro-slavery politicians are dominating the federal government and manipulating even Northern politicians like Pierce into doing their bidding and promoting slavery. So there's a deep sense that Pierce has betrayed the North and sold them out to pro-slavery forces. It really does fuel in ways previous events have not yet. This kind of, we are stepping to the precipice at this point. 1854, we've got about six years before things get crazy, but this is beginning the steps towards secession, et cetera, et cetera. Right now, it does feel, though, that the South has the upper hand, politically speaking, with Pierce in, in office. It's really going to take Lincoln's election that really tips the balance. But you can see all the chess pieces being played. And Franklin Pierce is a real winner for the South at this point. Absolutely. And many people then and now condemn Pierce as a doe face, meaning someone without principles, someone who's easily manipulated as a northerner with pro-slavery principles. And there's certainly a, a major element of truth there. Yeah, exactly. What's difficult is Pierce was so committed to preserving the Union and the Constitution that he missed the, the, the morality of slavery, and he missed how outraged many Northerners were by his actions. This is a chance that we, <laughs> in these short podcasts, we have to pay some attention to the other things that happened in Pierce's presidency, some of which are very important. The Gadsden Purchase was negotiated earlier on than the Kansas-Nebraska Act to acquire the land in the southern part of what is now New Mexico and, and Arizona. This was all part of the railroad 
the idea of the Transcontinental Railroad, which is a huge issue coming down the road. And that had a lot to do with freeing up that part of the country. Yet another addition to the massive land that we now have. One of the uh, personalities that is really worth talking about in Pierce's administration is Jefferson Davis. This is the beginning of, of Davis's rise to what he becomes, you know, eventually the presidency of the Confederacy. He's secretary of war under Pierce. What was their relationship? It was actually quite close, despite their differing sectional backgrounds, despite the fact that Pierce is a New England, uh, a New Englander, whereas Jefferson Davis is a Southerner, they do become quite close. Davis becomes a trusted confidant. And again, especially with Pierce's relative isolation with you know, his wife sort of retreating from public life, Davis becomes a, a really important friend. And Pierce really pursues an aggressive foreign policy. In Pierce's inaugural address, he declared, quote, my administration will not be controlled by any timid forebodings of evil from expansion. He believes that territorial expansion is essential for the rights of commerce and for, quote, the peace, peace of the world. So in other words, he, he, he thinks that territorial expansion is really essential for America's destiny. And one element of this is arranging the Gadsden Purchase in 1854, which adds about 30,000 square miles in southern Arizona and New Mexico in order to build a transcontinental railroad across the south. Uh, the Rocky Mountains present a, a huge obstacle to a transcontinental railroad. And so this territory was meant to help circumvent the Rocky Mountains. And uh, this is the final piece of territory of what is now the, the lower 48 states. Sure. It's a fascinating, uh, worthy of a podcast in itself, where the transcontinental railroad goes, you know, the, the, the route it takes is a fascinating political argument. Uh, Douglas eventually wins. It runs through Chicago and heads to California, to San Francisco. And that really establishes a huge economic route that fuels the growth of Chicago, has an enormous effect on the North versus the South. At some point, it was supposed to go through St. Louis. There was a major problem there. You know, it has to do with the building of the economy through this new mechanized transport. It's really interesting. He also has a lot to do with the opening of Japan. Under his administration, there is the Treaty of Kanagawa, I believe is pronounced. Matthew Perry is ordered to Japan. In the previous administration, it is signed under Pierce. A lot is happening in the Pacific. It's all tilting towards this interesting expansion towards empire, which really is at the heart of Manifest Destiny. <clears throat> we think of it as sea to shiny sea, but these guys really saw us as the world empire that we would become. It happens differently, but they really saw colonies and all the rest of it happening. Absolutely. Pierce also wanted to build a railroad across the isthmus of Panama. So again, he's thinking about expansion in a hemispheric and a global scale as you know, expanding across the continent, as trading around the world. That was his vision for America's destiny. Another crucial element of Pierce's foreign policy is his deep desire to purchase Cuba from Spain. He offered as much as $130 million to acquire Cuba, but Spain was reluctant. And this gets the Pierce administration into a bit of hot water because several American ambassadors meet in the town of Ostend, Belgium in October of 1854 and outline a policy proposal. They essentially argue that if Spain refuses to sell Cuba, the United States would be, quote, justified in wresting the island from Spanish hands. Now, it's important to note this was not something Pierce publicly endorsed. This is a policy proposal from his ambassadors. But when it gets published, Again, many Northerners are, are outraged. This is just 
one more piece of evidence that Pierce has sold them out to the slave power conspiracy. There is much to do with the Kansas-Nebraska Act that deserves more discussion, but let's leave it at that for now because I just want to hang Franklin Pierce's hat on that, that issue and understand that this is really what defines his time in office and also kind of chases him out. He, he doesn't have the support enough to get re- renominated, which is a surprise to him. He goes back to private life after this. He watches from New Hampshire the entirety of the Civil War take place, lives through it. He dies in 1869. So I wonder if he ever wrote anything and took any kind of new view of the actions that happened under... I wonder what he thought of his legacy. To the best of my knowledge, Pierce never accepted sort of personal blame for what had happened. Pierce believed that he had been trying to maintain the Union, maintain the Democratic Party, and he blamed anti-slavery forces for everything that happened. He viewed those anti-slavery forces as these radical agents undermining the stability of his beloved Union. And so despite Pierce's real responsibility for the events leading up to the Civil War, he refused to take responsibility for them. Yeah. It's interesting to reflect on it because consider the times, revolution throughout the world is happening a decade before, 1848. There is this new world of thinking about governance, and we are the front line of that, which is democracy, guided by our constitution. And this is really forefront in the minds of people like Franklin Pierce. It's really important to put yourself in their shoes because it really informs all their choices. It was union above all else for their kind because that was the only way to keep this democratic movement strong, building momentum through the world. It's a theme that continues to this day for us as we confront these issues even now. It's a shame because the care and consideration they took to be so careful especially these Northerners, to try to keep this together actually ends up backfiring in a big way if slavery is going to be confronted and ended. Because uh, let's be honest, had they had their way, this country would have tilted further and further towards slavery. It would not have been dismantled the way a Franklin Pierce hoped it would be. Absolutely. So Pierce's inaugural address, he said, quote, the oppressed throughout the world have turned their eyes hitherward, not to find those lights extinguished or to fear lest they should wane, but to be constantly cheered by their steady and increasing radiance. In other words, the Union represented the best hope for all of humanity. And if the Union perished, that hope would be snuffed out. Those are the stakes of all of these crises over slavery in Pierce's mind. That's why Pierce and other politicians like him worked so desperately to hold the Union together. And I do think that's a laudable goal, trying to preserve the Constitution and the Union against forces that might destroy it is a laudable goal. The problem is slavery is a moral issue. And as you said, if Pierce had had his way, slavery certainly would not have died out in the 1860s. Um, It's impossible to say when it might have. Mm -hmm, Exactly. A serious drinker ends up having a a huge problem with cirrhosis of the liver. One can only imagine why. (laughs) You know, given the diabolical tensions this man existed under personally and professionally, you can understand why he would turn to that. Brian Newman is the managing director of the John L. Now III Center for Civil War History at the University of Virginia, author of Bloody Flag of Anarchy, Unionism in South Carolina. Brian, what's new on your horizon? What do listeners need to know about? Well, I would really encourage listeners to check out the Now Civil War Center at the University of Virginia. We have several 
incredible digital projects looking at Southern Unionists, uh, men who stayed loyal to the Union during the Civil War, as well as African-Americans from Virginia that fought for the Union Army. We also have a series of events throughout the year. So if you're in Virginia, especially, I encourage you to check that out. Personally, my own research is leading me right into this period of the early 1850s. I'm personally researching the, the aftermath of the Compromise of 1850, looking at those reactions to the Compromise and this period of relative political peace and how it all gets unraveled. Oh, that's exciting. Just this preparation I did for this podcast really psyched me up for understanding that stuff even more so. It really is the beginning of what becomes the Civil War. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, all that information that he spoke of can be tracked in the website that we'll mention in the show notes. Thanks so much, Brian. Take care. Thank you so much for having me. It's truly an honor. I hope you enjoyed this episode of American History Hit. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Thank you for listening to this episode of American History Hit. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you'll also get your first three months for just $1 a month when you use code AmericanHistory at checkout.